Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. A fantastic subject does not make a painting. What you have to have is the design first. And the subject is hopefully giving you that, but it may not. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we work to answer the question, how do you get better at painting? I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers, and today I'm speaking with the voice you just heard, Ian Roberts. In the conversation, you're going to learn a ton about composition, the importance of value masses, and the difference between a design-driven and a subject-driven painting, plus a whole lot more. For show notes this week, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 36. Gloss and high gloss Patreon supporters, check out the bonus conversation with Roberts. You'll discover how sunlight and shadow affect your object's color and how to handle foregrounds, middle grounds, and backgrounds. And if you like the show and find yourself listening again and again, consider supporting it through Patreon. You can learn more at learntopaintpodcast.com slash support. All right, here we go. Hi, Ian. Thanks for being with us today on the podcast. How did you get started in art? My dad was a painter. And it's one of those things where my wife's a painter, as it happens. And her parents were like, oh, no, no, you don't study art. You study something practical. And I don't think my father ever questioned my wanting to do it. I presume I showed a degree of interest and talent that sort of said it wasn't completely far-fetched. But he used to go outdoor landscape painting, what everybody calls plein air painting now. And he had a number of friends. And I remember I would go from 11 on painting trips with him. And his friends would, at the end of the day, be putting their paintings out and they'd all be critiquing each other's work. And they encouraged me to show mine. And in some cases, I realized it was a dog and I didn't want them to see it. But sometimes it was okay. And you know, they critique my work too. But what was an astonishing education for me is that they didn't talk about, oh, I like that figure on the left and I like the boat. They talked about I really like how you've got that big dark shape on the left, counterbalancing that move over to the right. They always talked about in terms of design and structure and composition. And so by the time I wrote this book, Mastering Composition, and I think in the sense that was the beginning of it. I just got an education so young about how to think about paintings that I never had to go from subject matter and extract what the design was and leave away all the extraneous information. Because that's what so many students complain about. They don't know how to get rid of all the detail. They hate the detail. And it's because they're not really seeing the dynamic structure they're trying to do, and then only putting in enough detail to make that structure work, as opposed to what most do, is just add the details together, hoping when they're finished, it'll all add up to something. And invariably, halfway through, they realize it's not. I don't know what to do. So anyway, To your point, I got a very good education, very young, to what I think is a fundamental aspect of painting. Because so many of us come to painting because we love the landscape, or we love flowers, or we love the way a person sits in sunlight. We come to it because we love 
a subject, and then we have to learn, oh, it's not about that necessarily. Something has to catch your attention, obviously. That person, someone sitting in the sunlight is a good example, this beautiful, warm and cool light on somebody, and something sparks your attention, but it's not the subject. The subject's the excuse to make the painting about the shapes that are actually happening on your retina. And what's really interesting about the way we see, we assume we see in three dimensions. But the back of the eyeball is a two-dimensional plane, isn't it? And you realize, oh, we're seeing in two dimensions. Our brain is constructing the three-dimensional world. And you might say, well, we have two eyes. It gives you stereoscopic vision. That's good for about the first 15 feet. But everything after 15 feet, it's all flat. Everything. The back of our eyeball is producing two flat images that you then manufacture. And in a sense, the poet, Paul Valéry, the French poet, he said, to see is to forget the name of the thing one sees. Monet said the same thing. Just don't think about what you're painting. You respond to the shape, the light, the dark. Just get all those little pieces and the painting will take care of itself. And that's been my experience so often is students, they're just trying to paint the subject. And if they would just paint the shapes that they're looking at and get the value and the color intensity and so on, the landscape takes care of itself. You don't have to paint a landscape. You just have to paint the shapes and the landscape's automatic. We're going to talk about composition a lot, but to give people a sense of your process, could you walk us through your painting process? So let's say there's two processes. One is when I'm outdoors looking for something to paint plein air. I'm going to try to paint it now. And the other is working from a photograph because they're two fairly different processes. So often you go to an area that's new to you and you say, I'm a painter. And they said, oh, you should go and see that beautiful covered bridge down the road there. It's a subject. And it might be that at eight in the morning, the way the light is hitting that and the big shadow shapes across the road and so on could be a painting, but the bridge isn't a painting. The relationship of everything around the bridge and the shadow and the light on the bridge, you could sit there all day and I've found things, subjects, an old building or a chateau or something that I said, oh, this is fantastic. And I'll walk around it for an hour and I don't find a painting. A fantastic subject does not make a painting. What you have to have is the design first. And the subject is hopefully giving you that, but it may not. So you might come out to see something. I'll just give you an example. I painted an alley just a block away from me this morning, and I've been looking at it for two or three days, and I've seen it overcast in June gloom. I've seen it in midday, early morning, late afternoon. And of all those, there are four entirely different subjects. Two of them I wouldn't touch. The June gloom and the midday wouldn't touch. There's just nothing interesting. Both the afternoon and the evening with big cast shadows across the alley became quite interesting. So ideally, the process is about walking around a subject. In this case, the subject might just be a big field with a stand of trees at the back. Sometimes the most minimal amount of stuff will actually make a painting. If the relationships of the value masses, lights and darks, and the size of them comparative in the picture plane, if all those pieces are working, it's remarkable how little you need to make a painting. So I painted it this morning, turned out okay, and it was really a painting about shadow and light. And if you don't have sunlight, and so you don't have shadow and light, which obviously means ruining your breakfast and getting in the way of evening meal because that's when the light's good, ruins, plein air painting ruins your life, I can just tell you. Then the middle of the day, everything's boring because the light's flat, there's no shadows like that. So then you have to look for 
things that just naturally, like a big stand of cypress trees, big dark mass in front of something else, there you might be able to compensate for the fact you have no shadows because the things themselves have a ton of value shift to them and you're not relying on shadow to create it. So that's the first thing. And I would say from my own experience, and of course, I've been in places thinking, oh my God, the light's great and it's leaving. And I'm painting like a madman to try to catch all the subtle bits and memorizing as much as I can so that I don't forget the way it hit a little piece over there on the left and how it caught the rim of a hill over there on the right. But I prefer to have more time to walk around with a sketchbook, to do a good value study drawing of what I have in mind the day before at the time I want to paint it, and then get there about 40 minutes before when that light is really working. So that just as that light is peaking at the point you thought it was going to be ideal, you're right there ready and painting those parts that interested you. And then you're, I wouldn't say you're relaxed, but you're attentive to the process and it's playing in your favor. I just did a trip down the Grand Canyon on a raft for eight days and it was all plein air painters and it was orchestrated so there's no hikes in the middle of the day. You would just camp on these sand dunes and we had about two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon and really there was just the look up the river, the look down the river. You couldn't walk anywhere and so you pretty much were contained by those two views the light when I started would just be hitting the top of the rim of the canyon. And in the afternoon, it would just be leaving the last little touches on the ground. And you'd have to memorize the afternoon to get them in. And you'd have to just be painting in the morning until it says, bingo, that's where I want the light to be. And you draw it in. But the light moves fast. And there's no coming back tomorrow because we were going to be 20 miles down the river. So that was one of those things where you didn't have the luxury of that sort of time. You just have to figure it out and go. But ideally, there's enough to think about when you're painting plein air, so many things to juggle all at the same time, that if you're not finding these surprises of things you hadn't expected, like all of a sudden, obviously, if the clouds come in, then it's a different story. So here's the thing. The second thing is painting in the studio from photographs. Now, I mentioned that the back of the eyeball is a two-dimensional plane. A photograph, obviously, is a two-dimensional plane. The difference between a plein air painting in three dimensions and the big wide world all around you and focusing down on some tiny little rectangle of shapes is a very strict discipline that a lot of people are, even though they think they're painting inside the little rectangle, are constantly distracted by what's outside the rectangle and it plagues them. But with a photograph, particularly when you crop the photograph, now it's sitting still. The whole idea of abstraction, the word abstraction comes from the root meaning to pull away. So you have pulled away from real life and converted the whole thing onto two dimensions. That's an enormous abstraction. And now you're in the same ballpark as when you're painting, because now you've got a two-dimensional surface, and now you're just translating, hopefully interpreting, but translating these two-dimensional shapes into a different set of two-dimensional shapes on your canvas. And you've got all the time in the world to be cropping it and figuring it out, how the proportions are going to work and so on. Because again, with plein air, you might go out with a 10 by 12 canvas and it's got to fit. You don't have that studio flexibility. But what I hear you saying, and this is a little bit earlier in what you said, if you want to make a good painting, you either have to have good light, so dramatic light, or you have to make sure that the subject has dramatic value innately in the subject matter. 
So then you find that your students often paint before they have one of those two things, and that's oh. why they run into trouble? Most paintings, student paintings, are ruined before the brush even hits the canvas. Because I remember a woman one time, I've done a number of videos, and one of them was a demo video, but there was a, quite a bit of talking about what I was planning to do. And this woman said, I don't really like this demo. Demos are just when the brush is on the canvas. And my thought is, lady, all the real work is done before the brush hits the canvas. If you're trying to figure out the major problems as you begin to paint, you're in trouble. And it's only because you've figured out a structure, you've figured out those value masses, and you have them clearly in mind that you stand, to my mind, any chance of making that painting work. And so most students are so impatient to get brushed to canvas. And I get it. That's the exciting part. Color, brush, yes, I get it. It's exciting. Here's the thing. There's a wonderful expression that was pretty well known. It's that value does all the work, but color gets all the attention. You've heard it before. So if you look at it, you could imagine you look at a recipe, and the recipe for cooking something, and the recipe is for chocolate cake. And it says you need flour and eggs and milk and so on like this. And it's pretty dry. It's just a bunch of things. But you need that. It's not like making pasta and just pulling whatever you need out of the fridge because you make it up as you go along. A cake's got to be pretty precise in those arrangements in order to work. So the recipe tells you what you're going to do. The cake is the substance of the matter, and the icing is the icing. Color is like the icing. The cake is like the value masses, and the recipe is what you plan in advance to make sure the cake works. And so everybody loves the idea of the color, but if the value is not right and it's not built on a structure, it's like building a house without a foundation. And you can follow that analogy of the foundation of a house. If you've ever built a house and you decide, oh, you know what? I think we want to add, this is after the foundation is poured and they started framing it up. I think we want to add 10 feet to the living room and I think we want to make sure that there's another guest bedroom upstairs. And the builder looks at you like you're out of your mind because of the cost of what it's going to do to make those changes midstream. So in a way, that's what it's like when you're painting, because it's not that you build a structure and it's impossible to change it, but it's that you build a structure and that is going to help you all the way through, because once a painting starts, you're juggling a lot of things at once. And if you're trying to juggle the compositional idea at the same time, then halfway through, you're just thinking, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to finish it now. It's not working. So with a good compositional structure, you help yourself. And then having built that structure, then it's not that you're not painting with color as you go along, but color is just a tool to make sure those value masses work. Your painting really should be able to work in black and white. And if it doesn't, if this whole big, beautiful sky and this big, beautiful beach are actually the same value and it's 90% of your painting, oh, I think you got a problem. So then what makes a good compositional structure? So let's stay with landscape because it's a simple one to use this example. If you're standing out in the landscape, you have a horizontal. No matter where you're looking, you have a horizontal of the horizon. And normally speaking, you have, not normally, but often, let's say a bank of clouds and then maybe a distant hill or mountain and then maybe some, a line of trees back there and then a line of shrubs. And then there's a field and there's a fence. And every one of them is horizontal. Horizontals are everywhere in the landscape. What you need to look for and the thing that more than even the value masses sometimes is the vertical that I'm going to use between the top and the bottom of the picture plane. Because you can engage the left and the right really easily just because the horizon is going to do that. It's going to tell you like, oh, I see. But you have a whole picture plane 
And that picture plan is like New York real estate. Even if it's eight by 10 inches, every single piece of that, you want to be as lively as possible. You want it to be doing something. And the simplest way to have most paintings just get boring is you just have a bunch of horizontal stripes. Nothing's really engaging us, right? So I'm always looking for the vertical. And it might not just be a telephone pole that runs from top to bottom. It might be a line of clouds in the top third. It might run over to the, a dark mass of trees that comes down another third. And it might be a road or a bank of grass or something or two different colors of grass in the foreground that lead us all the way from the top to the bottom. So we are starting to orchestrate the dynamics of the whole picture plane. Because without that, I would just say for most people, look at how many paintings you've got with just a four-inch band of sky at the top doing nothing. And you realize, okay, in a way, you've given us a marker to say above this point, it's sky, but you've done nothing to engage us. So that would be, I would say, the first thing that I look for. And then how do those value masses fit into and structure with that horizontal vertical structure. And people always talk about the center of interest and they think, oh, the center of interest is my building or it's that figure or something. The center of interest may just be the intersection of that horizontal and vertical. And all you need is a touch of color one step more intense than you're already using at that point. And you've cemented the entire structure. I've seen that where people have built the horizontal and vertical on a workshop and I've talked about it. And then they have a building, bright, light colored building with a red tile roof over to one side and say, that's my center of attention. And you're completely messing with the viewer's head because you have structured the painting to work one way. And then you've added this extraneous kind of supplementary thing that's interfering with the actual structure you just set up thinking, oh, I need a center of attention. And it's that building because a building is a center of attention as opposed to the structure carries the painting. So almost in my mind, I see that there's two steps. There's the steps of, this is before you've picked up a brush, you're looking at it, it's almost just lines, verticals, horizontals. And then once you know that you can get your viewer into the painting, through the painting, that's when you bring your value masses in and start to really think about lights and darks and mids. I mean, my suspicion is it's not that separated, that the structure and the value masses are so interconnected that you don't really do one and then look for the other because if they're not, those lines may be created by a value mass. So it's not that I'm thinking, oh, structure than this. It's just that if you're walking around something, let's say you're walking in a field and there's a line of oats, let's say a pale green color for the oats and a darker orangey brown color for something else. And you see it over there and you're looking at it. Yeah, those are two nice colors. And then, but if you walk over and stand on the line that is being drawn by that green and that brown so that it's actually moving away directly away from you, straight into the horizon on a 90 degree angle, then you've got some power to what the structure is going to do. So it hasn't changed the value relationship between those two, but it's very significantly improved the structure and the potency of the design. So in that sense, the two things are always working together, but the structure is the one you have to keep walking around until something says, there we go. Backing up a little bit, could you just give a definition of what composition is? It's a good question because in the sense, often you see a book on painting and they'll have color and they'll have value and they'll have drawing and they'll have composition and they'll have trees and clouds. And it's like that composition is just thrown in there with all the others. But the fact is, 
as I said before, composition is the foundation the whole painting is built off. And so if you're imagining, again, building a house, the builder gets started and he's got all the lumber here and he's got the gravel there and he's got the siding over here and he's got all the different pieces are coming. And that's like the color and the value and the brushwork. Those are all the materials that you use to build on that foundation. But until that foundation is in place, those materials are almost useless. It looks like a shanty town unless you put in a proper foundation to the thing. So composition is that foundation and colors tied to it, values tied to it, drawings tied to it, brushworks tied to it. They're all tied together. You can't pull them apart, but you can think about the composition in a simple kind of three, four value drawing with a pencil that can tell you there's that rule, that 80-20 rule. I don't know. I think it was actually some Italian gardener that found that 80% of his peas came from 20% of his pods or something like that. But whatever it is, it's like the way I've always heard it is in sales. Like 80% of your sales come from 20% of your clients or something. But they use it all the time for almost everything. And I would say that if you can get a little like four inch by five inch, four value pencil drawing of value masses, I'd say you're like 80% there in terms of what the composition is. Sure, as you paint, things are going to come up and you're going to have to make adjustments. That's the whole thing. It's like a juggler, right? A juggler with eight pins, he doesn't know where that pin's coming exactly. He's making incremental little changes all the time to make sure all those things stay up there. Painting is like that. You're making little incremental changes of value and decisions all the way through, all the time that you're painting in order to get this thing to work. And if you're building, well, a carpenter's probably doing the same when he's building a house. He's realizing, ah, dang, that thing's about a half inch off. He's got to get some big clamp in there. It's a little bit more time consuming, but he's having to make saves, right? But again, he's building it on the foundation. It just keeps coming back to it. And we could take 10 images like Velasquez and Vermeer's a good example and Caravaggio. And they didn't just pick up a brush and start painting 10 figures on a 10 foot wide canvas and hope for the best. They had that thing geometrically aligned to what they had in mind. They were using a lot of geometry in order to build that basic structure. This whole book's sort of analyzing the geometry. A lot of times the person may have gone a little overboard on what the geometry was. It may be simpler than this person is, but for clear as a bell, there's a geometry. And once you start to analyze it, you realize there is no accident going on here. Because to just pick up a brush and start painting a bunch of figures on a canvas, you just can't do it. Is it useful to have a goal for a number of masses? Here's the thing, that if you get a viewfinder, like you can get, there's one that I use, it's a little square piece of plastic that has this kind of thing that moves up and down so you can go from a square to various rectangles. So there's different viewfinders, you can just cut one out of cardboard. But the thing with a viewfinder is that the world itself is, I mean, it's big and amazing. But you can't paint the big and amazing. It's like going to Provence. I taught, you know, plein air painting workshops in Provence for 25 years. And every year students would come and they want to paint Provence. You can't really paint Provence. What you have to paint is a little tiny corner of a vineyard and of a couple of vines, a cypress tree, and a little bit of blue hill in the background. And that says Provence. It's not that you're painting Provence. There's just, because you're in Provence, it's going to look like Provence. But you need to scale the world down through a viewfinder. Because if you're just looking at the world, I might get attracted to that vertical that we're talking about. But then the viewfinder helps you to limit it. And then you start to see the value masses. And to say, oh, should it be five value masses? 
certainly it shouldn't be a lot. Six, seven value mass is a lot. And you might just think about this. Supposing you're painting a backlit tree, again, just a backlit tree. And so you're in a field, backlit tree, and you've got one value for the sky, one value for the backlit tree, maybe one value for the shadow of the backlit tree, one value for the ground that's in sunlight. Might be four masses. It's pretty easy to get to four masses if you have a dark mass of trees and you've got sky, dark mass of trees, foreground field, might be three masses. There might be some variations. It doesn't mean that you're taking out a big gallon of house paint and putting in the big mass of the foreground with house paint. There might be all kinds of subtle modulations in color shifts, in color intensities and so on. But in principle, that's a big value mass with say a big dark shape for the trees on the horizon and then the sky. You could get away with three. I can show you paintings I've done with three value masses. You'd never say, oh, you're limiting yourself too much. It doesn't work. If you always did, then I'd say after a while, it's starting to look formulaic and you really need to branch out a bit. But I don't think you'd be thinking, I have to get it down to 12. I think 12 in most cases, getting to be a lot. How does someone make that shift from thinking about flat masses into the next step and turns that into a painting, into the next step of form and perspective? Okay, so you've answered the question right there with perspective. When you're saying flat value masses, I mentioned at the beginning that we see everything in two dimensions anyway, the brain structure. And when you're putting it on a canvas, it's going to be flat. Whatever you're seeing of simplifying the world into these value masses, you're simplifying it so that you stand a chance of getting those value masses onto your canvas. The idea of perspective, say if the trees are getting smaller, or if this tree is in front of that tree, or you've got a line that's running back into all those different things are the same things that we have in our mind that manufacture three dimensions for us. We use all those clues of three-dimensionality that we learn. That idea, like a six-month-old is looking at the moon and reaching for the moon because they don't have a sense that it's further away from them than the ball sitting on the ground. They don't have the learned experience yet of what's far away and what's close. That's a learned thing that we structure in our brain. So all those clues of dimensionality are being reconstructed by what we know about what's necessary to manufacture three dimensions for the viewer. Overlap being probably the biggest, right? Because if one thing is in front of another, we know it has to be behind it. We've created space. If there's a building and all the lines are heading back to a vanishing point, oh, we see that building. We just have so many clues in our brain for how the world is manufactured in three dimensions. The problem really is seeing in two dimensions to manufacture the big masses to be on the picture plane, which is going to be your painting. The clues you need to give us the sense of structure and carving the depth in the picture plane, those we do within the process. I wouldn't say automatically, because if you don't know perspective, your building can look wonky. Or if you don't know color intensity very well, you might get intense colors at the back when atmospheric perspective would be saying, couldn't be that bright. And so it'll start jumping forward and it'll leave the picture plane in terms of the direction you want the viewer to go, which is carving that depth. There's sort of two things, and it gets to the two things I was talking about. What happens before the brush hits the canvas and what happens after? What happens before is this whole structure and foundation business. What happens as you start to paint is crafting, because our job as a representational painter is to craft three dimensions on a two-dimensional plane. So then for the students 
that you have, what challenges do they have in making that, making that next step? Betty Edwards, who did that drawing on the right side of the brain, which was a brilliant book. She says, I think the most concise line you can take from that book is people don't have drawing problems, they have seeing problems. And if you look at the book, you realize everybody has preconceived ideas in their head of what they're seeing, and they draw the preconceived ideas as opposed to drawing what they're actually seeing. And that's the shift to a right brain way of working as an artist. If you're still thinking in a left brain way, and this is a slightly harsh statement because, and I'll get to why it's a harsh statement in a minute, but if you're a painter student and you're thinking in a left brain way, which is analytical, sequential parts, you tend to just catalog the information and add it all together. And then you're not quite sure why your painting doesn't work quite as well as it might because you didn't really see the holistic picture. And that's what the right brain is doing. It's a synthetic sort of design, spatial related sort of holistic thing. It's not saying that as you paint, you get caught up in a problem and you don't have to engage your intellect to figure out how you're going to get that thing to sit in front of that thing because they're hovering on the same plane now. So now you have to make a decision and think about it logically. And so you make a decision because actually life isn't giving you the solution. Life has actually just created the problem because the two colors are almost exactly the same and they're 50 feet apart and I need to get them apart, let's say. But one of the things that I say to my students is you would do way more to learn to paint, to put your brushes down, to put color away and work with a pencil and paper and do a composition a day sketch, three inches by four inches, of structure, trying to figure out structure and value masses. Because if it doesn't work, you think, ah, you throw it away. When you pick up the brush and you start painting, your ego's invested. Your whole artistic being of I want to be a painter is invested. And if it doesn't work, it's very discouraging. You're invested. Of course you're invested. It's normal to be invested for that. So if you can pull the stakes back, and be thinking every day, not a big fancy sketch, but really thinking through value masses and how you would be simplifying this into three, four, five values, a few simple shapes, a structure of how the top and the bottom, the left and the right are engaged, big shapes against little shapes, light shapes against dark shapes. You start thinking in those terms every day. You start to pull the brain to a right brain way of thinking. Because if you're getting halfway through a painting, finding that you're just getting bogged down in detail and cataloging everything. You're in a left brain. And here's a really interesting thing. That guy, Malcolm Gladwell, wrote a book, those 10,000 hours. The problem is, I read the research by the guy that did it, a guy named Dr. Erickson in Florida. And he said that actually, Malcolm Gladwell, brilliant as he is, misrepresented that information. Because he was there at that violin school or that music school asking questions about how long these people had been playing and how long it would take to be this good. And it just so happened that at 18 years old, the average of the 25 students was 10,000 hours. If you had said 16, talent level and passion is the same, or 21, you would have had a very, oh, 15,227 hours is not very eye-catching, right? So he picked up on this 10,000 hours. But if you want to get to Carnegie Hall, what do they say? Practice, right? To get to Carnegie Hall, you probably need 50,000 hours or 80,000 hours. Let's be reasonable. 10,000 hours, this is a really talented 18-year-old. So the other thing is the Dr. Erickson said, it's not any old 10,000 hours. It's 10,000 hours of deliberate 
practice. That word deliberate is insanely important because let's take a pianist that's practicing a piece by Chopin. And the whole thing's pretty good except for this 15-second piece in the middle that just is blowing my brains out. I can't do it. Deliberate practice means that every day you warm up, you do the scales, you make sure your fingers are limber, you make sure you get up to that point, you make sure you can finish, and then deliberate practice is on those 15 seconds because the rest is easy for you now. So the deliberate practice is if you want to be a painter, where's the weak spot? I would say for most people, it's drawing. How well do you draw? And if you want to paint, it's just drawing with a brush. It really is. You're adding the complexity of having to change the values, having to change the colors, having to change the width. There's 101 ways you can change the complexity of that drawing mark, but it's just drawing with a brush. And so to be able to simplify the world down into a few simple masses and be able to do it day after day like that, you will help pull the brain into a more right brain way of approaching the problem in the first place. Because I would say it is not deliberate practice. It's putting in the hours, but it is not deliberate practice just to get another photograph, put up another painting and start painting again, thinking that somehow I'm going to get better. Because you can also practice your 10,000 hours grinding in bad habits. I mean, oh, no. Oh, no. What was I thinking? <laughs> but it's true. Just think of tennis. If you don't have someone helping you with a good tennis stroke, you can grind in bad habits so deep they never come out. An instructor will never help you. <laughs> and all artists have heard this. If you've been painting for any time at all, that everyone says learning to see. But what I hear you saying is what learning to see is learning to see those value masses. And that's not intuitive in part because we're so just drawn to color or we're so drawn to that beautiful vase with flowers. And we can get back to that beautiful vase with flowers once we really teach ourselves to learn to see those value masses. And then not just to teach ourselves to see them, but teach ourselves to get creative with them and design with them and explore with them. But it is through those value masses first and foremost. Let's take an example of a still life. We talked about landscape, but let's take an example of a still life. And I see this all the time. You can say, oh, I really like those flowers and the vase is pretty and I'll put two oranges here and a couple of lemons and I'll put my little thing there. And you look at it and then they paint the whole thing. And you ask, what's the light doing? All the lights are, there's light coming in the window on the left and light coming in window on the right. And there's overhead lights and there's no form because it's just flooded with light. Now, if you shut all the lights off, close all the windows and take one spotlight and shine it on that same subject, and you shine it from the top, you shine it from the left, you shine it from the right, you're seeing three entirely different, just like I was saying about that alley painting, three entirely different still life. It's not even a question of being able to tell if it's the same objects because there may be lost edges and shadows that obliterate things and it's just falling into these beautiful masses of light and dark. That would be a way to do it. If you lived in an apartment in New York and it's the middle of winter and you can't get out, Say, oh, what am I going to paint? How can I do a composition a day? You could just find a room, get it dark, set up a few objects, simpler the better. And then if you just took literally like two white vases or mugs almost and some other circular thing, a lemon or something, and a medium colored thing and a very simple background, like just hang a cloth behind it, maybe a couple of wrinkles in the cloth or something, and just try that with a light on the left and then above and then on the right. And do a little drawing, four inches by five inches, say, of those things. Just 
drawing the value masses. Because one of the vases, you may lose the back edge of the vase. You can't even see it. The edge is lost. So you're thinking, oh, I need to draw the vase. Where in fact, all you need to draw is the lit side of the vase because the shadow side of the vase is part of the background, for example. There's no line there. It's gone. So you start to think in terms of the masses, not in terms of the subject. That would actually be much easier than landscape because landscape, it's very easy for things to trigger us. If you're drawing a building and you've got to get the eaves in and the windows, it's just, oh God, you're right back into left brain thinking because it's hard. So that would be a really intriguing experiment just to get the thinking going. Like Morandi, the Giorgio Armandi is an Italian painter that just painted these bottles over and over again all his life. And if you look at a book of his work, there's hundreds of these paintings of, a, I don't know, I've been in a studio, there was like 25 bottles. I mean, he's long dead now, but it's just so interesting because he found enough in those few shapes to keep him busy. And he had the lighting just coming from, I think, a north window behind him, because you just get these little slivers of shadow coming in behind things. So there's not very much in the way of shadow. But I'm just pointing it out to say, there's a well-known painter who only painted a few bottles all his life. You could do worse than doing 30 drawings with a few objects and really dramatic light and just see what happens. What's the difference between a subject-driven painting and a design-driven painting? So I think earlier in the talk, we were talking about seeing this gorgeous chateau and thinking, oh my God, that's fantastic. I know I can paint that. That's a subject. And you might walk around and put your easel down and this big, beautiful view of the chateau and you paint it because it's a beautiful subject. That's a subject-driven painting. But if you walk around and realize, I don't know, it's just the lights hitting the whole building. It doesn't look like much right now, but maybe we'll come back at five o'clock. And at five o'clock, the light is just raking across the front of it and hitting the two turrets and the rest is in shadow. And there's a big, beautiful mass of trees in the foreground that's just catching a light and a long sliver of light that's running right through the foreground shadow. Then you say, whoa, now we have something that's interesting. And it's being designed by the value masses, but it's being designed by, in this case, by the time of day, if it were a still life, you might do it by the direction of the light. If it's a portrait, it might be how you think of when you draw a figure, you just put the person straight forward, just square to you, face head on, and they're just facing you. You can do a painting of that for sure. That's definitely a portrait. But if you're just saying, I want to draw a figure, I don't want to draw a portrait necessarily. Then the face isn't even necessary. The person could be turning away and they could have their shoulders turned and they could be doing any number of things with their body to indicate some quality of thought or discomfort or something. And so now you're not being dictated by the subject, which is the face and the foot. You're being dictated by the gesture and the mood or quality of the figure. And then that starts to become more design driven. But I would say really to make that work better, the figure is just facing you and it's well lit the way your face is now in your room. Just, you just lit There's lots of light everywhere. But I would say, okay, that's a subject and that could make a good painting. But let's take it and we say, okay, we're going to take all, shut off all, and we're just going to have one light and maybe one very faint, warm light that's a backlit. And we're going to maybe hardly see the face, but the beautiful robe the person has on and the way the light is coming across it. And then just the way that warm light is hitting their hair as a backlight, all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, look at that. And then that's a design. So We've talked a bunch about color and value and those kinds of concepts. 
and I guess put those as tools. But one of the tools we haven't talked about is mindset. So how important is mindset in learning to paint? I think the biggest thing people deal with is fear. I wrote a book called Creative Authenticity, and one of the points in it was the dance of avoidance. What do we do when we could be going to the studio? No one says we should be going to the studio. If we don't paint another painting in our lifetime, I don't think the world is necessarily going to crumble and dissolve. In the sense, maybe nobody ever cares, but we care. I care. You care whether you're going to make a painting or not. It resonates inside of you. There's no way to understand. Why do you want to paint? You can't answer that question. You just do. So if it's valid and if it bugs you enough to do something about it, you have to get over the dance of avoidance. And the dance of avoidance never goes away. I still deal with it. I walk in the studio. There's these little rituals of things I do in the morning that I have to go through before I can start. But I know myself now enough. I see my tricks and I work through those tricks really quickly. Because if you're not that experienced with it, those tricks can just lead you astray and down the path and over to here and got to buy this and maybe I'd do better with this and I should take another workshop and it can just go on for a lifetime. In a way, I think that's the biggest issue is realizing there's a reason you want to paint. Good reason, bad reason, doesn't matter. It just, it's there. You might have to play it against wanting to learn piano and I don't know, opera singing or something. And then maybe that's stretching yourself too thin to do all of them well, perhaps. But if you want to paint well, it's really just coming down to practice and doing a lot of crappy work, honestly. And there's no way around it. If you're precious about every piece you do and think, just think about this for a minute. How many times, I've had it happen all the time, where I say I'm an artist and people say, oh, I can't even draw a stick figure. Happens all the time, right? And so that's because you've never practiced to draw, have you? I don't do this. I leave it there. I don't start to nail them on it. So I can't draw a stick figure. How much time have you spent trying to learn to draw the figure? None. Oh, okay. So let's say, have you ever played piano? No, I never played piano. How's your piano playing? Well, I can't play piano. But as well as you draw stick figures? Oh, even worse, right? It's like, why do people think the piano, you got to practice and practice? Everybody knows what it takes to learn piano. You go there every day, you practice the scales, you start with a simple piece by Chopin or Beethoven or something, these simple little things, and you're learning it, and each year you get a little better and a little better, muscle, motor, memory skills get better, your, how you read the music gets better. My daughters have been doing it now for a decade. I see, they get better. They practice, they get better. It's slow work. Nobody would take up piano and say, oh, this is a light little quick thing. Everybody knows to learn to play piano is hard. To learn to paint well is hard. Don't pretend it's not. The skills of representational painting, all those conventions of representational painting, there's a lot of them. They have to fit together all at the same time. There's a lot of pieces going on. And so I would just say half of the problem in learning to paint is your fear of how big the problem is and how big the disappointment is between what you would like to be able to paint the vision you have in your mind and what you did today. And it's discouraging. It's discouraging. There's no other way around it. It's practice. It's not about talent. It's practice. If you have the desire to do it and you practice, you can do it. I've seen it. So if someone came to you and said, I want to get really good at painting, what advice do you give them? I would simplify it down to a four inch by five inch drawing 
of things that they can orchestrate themselves so that they're seeing the lights and the dark masses and draw those masses and start to try to understand how those masses interact with the dimensions of the picture plane, that four inches by five inches, how that design is working, and is it interesting? And I just say that take a little time and learn how to lay in a flat value mass. Because if you try to lay in a flat value mass and it looks like a bunch of chicken scratches, then you're going to be disappointed every time you do it. But again, that's a little tiny piece of deliberate practice to solve a very simple little problem of laying in a flat value mass so that you can start laying in value masses so that your drawings will work. And I'd forget about color. And I'd forget about painting dogs and cats and complicated things like the beach where you were last summer. I would try to set things up. Actually, I think that I just thought of it today, but I think that still life idea is not a bad idea. Dark room, single light source, and just see what one single, very simple, I wouldn't say it was a rule, but maybe three or four objects and not bushy, complex objects with a bunch of decoration on them. Simple objects. Just see how much you can learn and understand just doing that. Do 30 of them and see what you've learned. Ian, you have a YouTube channel. It's all about composition. So just tell us a little bit about what you're doing over there. So we've been talking now and you've been asking these questions and I'm trying to do what we've been talking about. The subject of it is mastering composition. I've been trying to do visually what we've been talking about in a six or seven minute video every single week. So since it's a visual medium, there's lots of things we've talked about that I think are functionally helpful. I don't mean that we can't understand things. I'm just saying, I think seeing some of these principles, like you've asked questions, I just demonstrate the thing and you realize, oh, I see why that works. You can find more about Ian Roberts at his website, ianroberts.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and his excellent YouTube channel. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Ian. That was great fun, Kelly. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 36 for show notes, including a link to Ian's fantastic YouTube channel. While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list to get more ideas on how to get better at painting. And if you like the show and can tell it's making a difference in your art life, consider supporting it. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash support to learn more. And speaking of support, thank you to everyone supporting monthly through Patreon and to High Gloss supporters Andrew Atterbury, Debbie Miller, and Janet Wheeler. Happy painting!